Nina Serrano will be honored for her book, Heartstrong. Congrats to Nina. Thank you, Wesley Burton. Thanks for listening. You're listening to KPFA, KPFB, KFCF, and Fresno. Cover to cover, open book begins now. Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guest is Lucha Corpi, the educator, the novelist, the poet. She wrote the first Chicana detective series, and a wonderful series it is. She writes beautiful poetry, and now she's given us her inspiring memoir. Welcome, Lucha Corpi. Gracias, Nina. Es un placer. We're so glad you're here, and we're so glad you've brought a copy of your new memoir. Could you tell us a little about it? Well, the title is Confessions of a Book Burner, Personal Essays and Stories. People ask me, why Confessions of a Book Burner? And for that, you will have to read the book and come to the last essay, which is called Confessions of a Book Burner, and you will have all the answers you want. That's what I found as a reader, that I'd be reading along, I think there are six essays, and when I finally got to the last one, and it told what that was about. It was like finding a little prize in the Cracker Jack box. Yeah. Like, oh, this is what she means. Yeah, yeah. It was a very exciting process. I found reading it a very exciting process because times would bounce back and forth as the themes wove in and out of your life. But the things that seemed always to be there was writing literature, and also being Mexican, and also being in the United States, being a Chicana as well, and always being a woman, and for a long time, the struggle of being a single mother. Those were themes that seemed to be reoccurring, and for me, were fascinating. Thank you. I started this book actually planning it, thinking about it, when my first granddaughter was born, which was in 1997, I believe. I started thinking about it. I wrote a couple of essays, The Four Free and Invisible, which has to do with my learning to read and write in this very small town when I was four. In I realized as I was revising those essays this time with a different perspective that I have lived my life in four different places. My childhood, which I spent in Jaltipan, Veracruz. Then I spent my adolescence in San Luis Potosí, which is a central Mexico. Then at age 19, I got married. And I came to Berkeley, where I lived 10 years and actually went to school at UC Berkeley. Then, finally, I moved to Oakland, where I was a teacher for 31 years, and where I lived and was more a city that I enjoyed living in, despite all its bad reputation and everything, is one of the most ethnically integrated cities in California. And for that reason, it has very particular problems, too. <laughs> but I was making a memory, in a way, of the time that I've spent in California, both in Berkeley and Oakland. I came across the border 
1964. So that means that 2014 is the 50th anniversary of my having come in September to the U.S. I had no idea whether I was going to stay here or not. I had no idea what was in store for me, you know. So one thing I found writing this book is that I don't have a lot of regrets that I somehow managed along the way to put things in perspective, to scrutinize my life in a way as I was having the experiences and then put things in order, do a little, you know, psychological housekeeping as I was going through bad times or good times and, you know, making peace with with whatever has happened and learn the lessons that are there and moving on as best I can. I learned to do that actually in Berkeley and Oakland because going through a divorce and being a single mom for 24 years is a tough time and it was full of all kinds of contradictions and ambivalence and all that. But the idea with the essays was, you know, not just to write a memoir, but I wanted to leave something for my grandchildren. A life, you know, that also includes their paternal grandfather and all other people that have been very important in my family in Mexico. I'm the only one who came here and stayed, so all of them live in Mexico. So I wanted that. The theme goes from the place I was born and spent my childhood, which was so, in a way, determinant of what I did later. Do you think you could read us a little of that section? Well, yes, I can read actually from the second essay, which is called For Free and Invisible. I was lucky to spend my formative years in a small community that fostered the creation, performance, and appreciation of music, dance, poetry, and storytelling. Jaltipan de Morelos, Veracruz, was still a village and had a population of about 2,000 the year I was born, a small tropical community on the Gulf of Mexico's side of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. It lay on a tropical savanna about 40 minutes by car or cranky bus from the coast. It gained its city status in 1953 after the Azufrera Panamericana, the Pan American Sulfur Company, began operations there, attracting workers from all over Mexico. The town's population exploded in the next decade. Before then, migration to the southern half of the state trickled down from the port of Veracruz, where cargo and passenger ships sailing the Atlantic arrived. So it wasn't unusual to find families with North American, German, French, and Italian ancestry and surnames, who had arrived from Europe via Cuba and other Caribbean islands, where they had relatives and had decided to settle in the region of Sotavento, where Haltipan was located. In many of the region's towns, including Haltipan, four different dialects of the Popoluca were still spoken, in addition to Zapotec and Nahuatl. As expected, Spanish was the dominant language, but it still had great competition from Mexicano, Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica people, the Aztecs. My birthplace owes its name to the Nahuatl words for it, Xaltipac, which literally means place on sands. During the post-conquest era, his name was substituted by its phonetic version in Spanish and became Haltipan. The old town I call home until the beginning of 1954 had four major thoroughfares. They fanned out from the main square, El Parque. Each had an official name. Two of them, Avenida Morelos and Calle Gutierrez Zamora, respectively led to the trans-ethnic highway. 
At some point, it met the Pan-American Highway, which threaded together most of the larger towns throughout Mexico's southern states. Calle Morelos was referred to and known by most native Haltipanecos as El Camino a Cozoliacaque Minatitlán, the way to the towns of Cozoliacaque and Minatitlán. Calle Gutierrez Zamora was the way to Acayucan, another town. If by definition we consider any world community to be multicultural and multilingual, when many languages and cultures prosper and benefit from contact with one another, then Haltipan was such a place. The generations of the Popoluca, the native Mexicans in the region, were the remaining descendants of the old Olmec, the ancient civilization famous for their carvings of monumental stone heads. When I learned that Popoluca translates into Spanish as gente que habla mucho, people who talk a lot, I found the designation appropriate, whether inhabitants were pure-blooded descendants of the pre-Columbian Mesoamericans or mestizos or the offspring of more recent European transplants, the native Haltipanecos were gregarious. They loved socializing, playing music, singing and dancing, writing and performing poetry and telling stories. In most areas of town, we enjoyed the use of electricity, but we lacked other modern conveniences. For example, until I was almost six years old, there was no tap water. People caught rainfall and large drums for washing and bathing. Folks who could afford it paid water carriers to bring cans of drinking water to the doorsteps from the natural springs outside town. Twice a week, Tirso El Aguador, the water carrier, brought the spring water to our home. Sometimes, Tirso would let my brother Victor and me sit on his mules while he emptied the cans into the large drinking water ollas in the kitchen. Water carriers were famous for being among the toughest and most foul-tongued men in the region. Our Tirso was no exception. But unlike other water carriers, he delighted in teaching the children in town some of his favorite colorful expressions and instructed us on the right situation for their use. His lessons began with the simplest and more acceptable words like carajo, darn, or que carajo pasa, what the heck or hell's going on, for any kind of mistake or minus mishap. Then he moved on to the brighter, redder biggies, which were the more dramatic, hurtful, and socially censored expletives involving mothers and other acts, which I, being four years old, could not even begin to grasp. Tirso's stone grew deeper and his gestures became more theatrical as Victor and I mastered each word in the litany of biggies he taught us. Six and four years old, Victor and I were Tirso's star pupils. Being a great deal more cautious than I, Victor did not use his kind of color for language in front of our parents and he suggested I follow his example a warning that I naturally didn't heed. I filled up with those forbidden words as if they were mangoes or guavas, meaty, sensual and sweet. Encouraged by the soft chuckles of relatives and other adults around me, whenever they heard me, I practiced my newly acquired vocabulary every day. While trying to run fast down the stairs to the backyard, I tripped and almost fell down the steps. Ay, ching! Casi me mato. Oh, I almost killed myself. Busy as I was rubbing my sore knee, I didn't see my mom until she was standing next to me with a basket of laundry resting on her hip. I covered my mouth with my hand and prayed to everyone in heaven that she hadn't heard me. My throbbing earlobe benched between my mom's thumb and index fingernails made me immediately aware that my plea had gone unheard up there in the celestial kingdom. 
Once inside the house, my mother reached for a chilillo, a long, skinny, flexible reed, which she kept at hand for those times when we needed to be reminded that when she said no, she meant exactly that. My brother Victor came running in. When he saw the chilillo in my mom's hand, he knew I was going to get it, but he pleaded with my mom, begging her that he, instead of I, be punished. My mom had a soft spot in her heart for Victor. And my brother had a soft spot in his for me. So my mom whipped the air with a chilillo, then put it down. But warn me, I'll wash your mouth out with soap if I ever hear you use bad language again. That's a promise. No question, I was a willful child. And for months I gave her innumerable opportunities to keep her promise. And she did. That year... I was a four-year-old with the cleanest, though not necessarily the purest, tongue in town. Marvelous. (laughs) Your first encounter with language. Yes. Marvelous. So the struggles and encounters with language continue. Yes. When I was eight years old, as I said, we moved to San Luis Potosí, which was a very traumatic experience for all of us in many, many ways because San Luis was so different from the tropical town we had grown up in. I had found as a child that silence and melancholy were actually my allies because I could spend time by myself quiet enough to hear what was going on in my head and my feelings come you know face to face with feelings that were not uh, so pleasant and I was interested in one of those occasions I was interested in learning the language of the devil because el diablo the devil would you know come at night and tempt people at dances and all kinds of situations and these were the tales my grandmother used to my grandmother was a storyteller it was a great storyteller so she said well you know she talks to about riches and power to men and tempts them to be this and that and of course takes their souls but women too You know, he whispers little, you know, uh, sweet nothings in their ears and take their soul. And well, I asked my grandma, you know, what, what does he say to women? Has he ever talked to you? And my grandma said, no, 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 no. I have not been tempted by El Diablo. But at that point, I became interested in the language of El Diablo. What were these sweet nothings? So I used to spend a lot of time in the dark sitting at night by myself while everybody was asleep, waiting for El Diablo to show up and teach me (laughs) the language, his language, because I was interested in learning. So even at that early age, of course, all prompted and, you know, encouraged by my, my grandmother's stories, I was already becoming a storyteller. I just didn't know it at the time. The essays, there are 11 12, I think, 12 essays in the book, ranging in length and and subject and all that. But all of them go through the four places and the four stages in my life. If you read the whole book from beginning to end, you will get a novel, actually. That's what I did. (laughs) In chapters. But if you prefer to read just one of the essays or two or one at a time, you can do that perfectly well, you will still be able to tell what is going on. And all those skills are actually what I acquire in writing the fiction. I don't judge my characters. I present them as I believe they are and let 
the reader make up their minds because you deal with so much stuff that has to do with other people. For example, I went through a very, very painful divorce. Now, it would be very easy for me to trash my ex-husband. <laughs> and I have been tempted every so often. But I think, in a way, making peace with that part of my life already makes me see things in a more objective way and present him and treat him as I treat my characters with respect to who they are, not trying to influence them or make them into what I want. So uh, trying to understand why they are doing what they're doing. And In and this memoir, you treat him very fairly. You credit him with opening up a lot of your intellectual yes, life. it is true. It is true. I was in San Luis Potosí, a super Catholic city, and I don't know, I, I, I was different. You know, I adapted to socially to, to everything. I got a very good education there, too. I had lots of friends, and I had lots of, you know, young men who wanted to be boyfriends, too. <laughs> but the reason I was attracted to my first husband is that he, like the devil, whispered sweet nothings in my ear. And the sweet nothings were things that I had been starving for. Knowledge, reading, more expanding my horizons. Can you read us a little more from your book? Yes. Confessions of a Book Burner. Of a Book Burner. This has to do a little bit with when I met Gloria Damasco, who is the detective, in my novels, I have four novels in her series, and it's a eulogy for a brown angel, the first one, the second one is Cactus Blood, third one is Black Widow's Wardrobe, and then the fourth one is Death at Solstice. I'm going to read a little bit about the roads not taken. There is a, a, an essay in the book that speaks about destiny, pursuing destiny. And so there are times when we miss. So there are other roads that we take. And so this is to do with the roads taken. One of those roads led me to the fulfillment of a childhood dream to write a mystery novel. In 1989, during a sojourn in California, Sierra Nevada, I first briefly saw and heard Chicana P.I. Gloria Damasco, the lead detective in a series of novels I was to write, and the woman who would eventually tell the Malinche story in Black Widow's Wardrobe, the third in the series of four Gloria Damasco detective novels. I had gone to the Sierra Nevada specifically to revise and organize my second poetry manuscript, Variaciones sobre una Tempestad, Variations on the Storm, which was already due at the press. The late Ted and Peewee Kalman, whom I had met through Kathy and Alcides, offered me their condo for a week in the town of Donner Lake, a short drive from Lake Tahoe. I accepted. A good thing was that my good friend and publisher at Third Woman's Press, Norma Larcon, and her husband visited me there for a couple of days, and we had a chance to talk about the project. Then they went on to explore the Lake Tahoe area on their way back to Oakland. At the end of three days of intense work, my manuscript was ready. I put back in a folder the photocopies of loose poems that I had decided not to include in the collection. One by one, I burned the extra Xerox copies of all the poems, but not of Kathy's translations. I also threw in the pyre all those poems that I didn't consider to be good enough for inclusion in the collection or to keep in the unpublished work folder. I was done. But since I had the condo for two more days, I decided to stay and get some rest. 
I had taken with me some CDs, among them a recording of the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly. I'm not an opera buff, but for some unknown reason I was obsessed with that opera, especially the aria Umbel D. I had also started a list of books I wanted to read about the architecture, viticulture, and the wine industry in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys, also known as the California Wine Country. Before my stay in Donner Lake, I had made repeated trips to both valleys looking into the history of the Vallejo family in Sonoma and the Peralta family in Oakland. Following my obsessions at the time, I had frequently driven to Los Angeles to study gangs and events that led to a riot during the 1970 National Chicano Moratorium. I was also researching an elixir I had come across during a visit with my son when he spent his junior year abroad in Brazil. I had already decided to write my first mystery novel, Eulogy for a Brown Angel, and sensed, more than knew, that all of my obsessions and interests had to do with the plotting of the novel. Yet I had no idea how how they would eventually fit together, nor had I conceived my main character, the detective that would need access to all that knowledge and experience. Looking to research some of these topics during my sojourn in the mountains, I paid a fruitless visit to a local bookstore in Lake Tahoe. I bought instead a P.D. James mystery novel and drove back to Donner Lake. After a walk along the lakeshore, I went back to the condo when dark, heavy clouds began to gather above the mountains. Sunset was still two hours away. I locked the sliding doors to the lake before I went up the spiral staircase to the living area. I turned on my CD player and listened to Puccini's opera, then lay down on the sofa to read P.D. James' mystery yarn. About an hour later, I slipped into a deep sleep, only to be awakened later by a loud noise. I opened my eyes, total darkness. I was sure someone was in the sleeping area downstairs. My fears immediately raced down the spiral staircase to the sliding doors. Had I locked them, after all? Was someone down there, lurking, waiting? How long before the intruder made his way up the spiral staircase? I listened intently, but all I could hear and feel were my intermittent breaths and the rapid beating of my heart. I was trembling from head to toe. But I forced myself to sit up while I weighed the risks of going downstairs and confronting the intruder. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, and as quietly as possible I walked to the fireplace and got hold of the poker. I began my descent barefoot, Taking one step in deep breath at a time, I stood at the foot of the stairs and surveyed the area, then walked to the sliding doors and checked them. They were locked. I looked behind each closet and room door and under each bed until I was satisfied no one was there. As I got to the top of the stairs, my heart did a Mexican head dance in my chest. Something or someone, a white raggedy gown on, its arms flailing wildly, swayed and gestured just outside the sliding doors to the dark balcony. It's not of this world, I thought. My heart picked up its pace. The phantasm went on with his macabre dancing. I put down the poker and looked around for a cross or a crucifix. I sucked in a nervous chuckle as I realized that I would not find such an object there. My friends, the commons, were Jewish. In the absence of a ghost-busting instrument, I crossed one index finger over the other to make a cross and walked closer to the sliding doors. The specter turned out to be a large white windsock dancing in the night air. I had no idea who had hung it from a branch of the pine next to the balcony during my long nap. I dropped to the floor, scared out of my wits. Still shaking and breathing hard, I made myself a cup of coffee and sat in an easy chair, cloaked in a cotton blanket in darkness, unable to close my eyes and get some sleep. Closer to dawn, I turned on the CD player. Lo, 
hoping that Madame Butterfly would lull me to sleep. It took a long while for the soprano to reach the first heart-wrenching phrases of the area, Umbeldi, and for my eyes to finally close for what seemed only seconds, as if on a light red screen inside my lids I saw a pair of dark hands and arms, and nestled between them a little boy, a toddler who appeared to be asleep. I am Gloria. And this child is for you, a woman's voice said as she handed me the little boy. I extended my arms to receive her gift. They were still outstretched when I opened my eyes. I heard the crack of thunder in the distance, the same noise that had awakened me the previous night. It was noon and the thunderstorm was moving in. It would soon be raging right above Donner Lake. Driving down the mountain in such unsettled weather made no sense. I made lunch and ate. Then I picked up my notebook and wrote, Luisa and I found the child lying on his side in a fetal position. This is the opening line of eulogy for a brown angel, my first Gloria Damasco mystery novel. That's marvelous. Thank you. It's wonderful to be able to hear you read it. It's so different than when I read it to myself. And you really describing how you went about writing a mystery. You wrote a mystery. Yes. This has been really marvelous, really marvelous. Confessions of a Book Burner by Lucha Corpi, who's been reading to us and discussing with us how she went about writing it, why she went about writing it, and sharing with us her role as a poet and her role as a novelist and doing it all with beauty and courage. Thank you so much, Lucha Thank you, Carp. Nina. It's been a pleasure. The same, igualmente. This next poem is my own and it's called The Women I Know and I'm accompanied by the musical art quintet led by Sasha Jacobson. Pressure. The moon 
no longer harassed me. So I thought I was invisible. But now, in this post-menopausal zest, at this moment, I am so visible, no matter who doesn't see me. This has been Nina Severno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. Here's another community-powered announcement from KPFA. Oakland Ballet warmly invites you to celebrate the season at its magical production of Graham Lustig's The Nutcracker. This December 20th and 21st, just once each year, the stage of Oakland's spectacular Paramount Theater is transformed into a winter wonderland, complete with toy soldiers, snow maidens, the sugar plum fairy, and the Nutcracker Prince. You're invited to come enjoy this fresh take on the classic ballet, surrounded by family, friends, and holiday cheer. This is a benefit for the Oakland Ballet. Ballet Company. For more information,